After this, David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up to any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, go up. And David said, to which shall I go up? And he said, to Hebron. So it starts off here, chapter 2, after this. Well, after what, I might ask? Well, after receiving word of the death of Saul and the time of grief the nation went through, uh, mourning his loss. And what does David do? Well, this is the secret to the success of David. This is important that we see this about this man. David inquired of the Lord. That's just simply what the author of the text tells us. That he said, shall I go up to, yes, the Lord, shall I go up to any of the cities of Judah? Now remember, David's been living for at least 18 months in the territory of the Philistines, in the city of Ziklag. But for more than that, think about this, for at least 10 years or more, David has been on the run, living outside of a home, living in the wilderness and in caves, on the run from the threat of Saul, now is Saul dead. He inquires of the Lord, shall I go up to any of the cities of Judah? And I like what the Lord says. The Lord's like, yep, go. And, you know, David could have just gone anywhere with that answer from the Lord. But then he inquires further. He says, Lord, to which city shall I go up? And the Lord told him to Hebron. Now, I, I, I like this kind of dynamic of prayer with David and the Lord here, that the Lord's first answer is just a simple yes. But it, it invited this from David, that David seek the Lord more. And I would tell you and encourage you that that's what prayer is about. You know, often we think this, that we think prayer is just about getting answers. Give me a yes, Lord. Give me a no, Lord. And then, you know, done deal. But the Lord is always doing this. He's always inviting us to a deeper place of intimacy, to seek him more. Prayer, prayer I would actually say, is about this. It's not about answers. It's about intimacy. And we often get this wrong about prayer. I mean, the Lord wants intimacy with us. And if he just answered your request the very first time that you asked them, well, then it wouldn't actually produce anything for you relationally, except, you know, the Father in heaven would be like your sugar daddy. And you just come when you need your yeses and your noes, and we'd, you know, just turn on and off the relationship when we want answers from the Lord. But prayer is about developing and being drawn into intimacy with the Son, Jesus, and with the Father, with the Spirit. So David got his first answer from the Lord, and the Lord gave him just enough information to cause him to be more specific in prayer. It's good to be specific in prayer. And to seek the Lord more, and the Lord said, go to Hebron. So Hebron was uh, in the southern part of Israel, in the southern part of Judah's Allotment. It's just 40 kilometers from where David is living in Ziklag. And it's historically, it's a super important city to the children of Israel. This is where Abraham and Sarah were buried, where their tombs are. This is where Isaac and Rebekah and Jacob and Rachel are also buried. This is the city that when the children of Israel came into the promised land and were taking over the land from the Canaanites, Caleb said, give me that hill. And he went and took 85-year-old Caleb, the city of Hebron. And so this is a significant place. So verse 2, check it out. So David went up there. And his two wives also, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of 
Nabal of Carmel. And David brought up with him men who were with him, everyone with his household, and they lived in the towns of Hebron. So again, Hebron is in the territory of Judah. This is the tribe that David is from. He grew up in Bethlehem, a little bit to the north. And, uh, and so he's going to settle in this region with his band of misfits. Remember, the disgruntled, the disheartened, the men that were you know, in financial trouble, all these different guys that were with him. And they settle in this region. And then verse 4, it says, And the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. So David's return here to Israel was the signal for the tribe of Judah that it was finally time to take David, to anoint him as their king, to make him king. It's been something, I think about this. It has been, if that's for me, it's, I'm busy right now. Um, it, uh, it has been more than 25 years since Samuel anointed David when he was a teenager and said that he was going to be king of Israel. Isn't that crazy? 25 years. Uh, you know, I, I bet he never would have imagined that the time of the Lord's fulfillment of that promise from Samuel would take so many years. And I, I don't know about you. I don't know if I could say I have things that are like 25 years in my life, but there, there are things that I've expected the Lord to do and thought that they would come about much quicker than they ever did. How about you? This was the Lord's timetable, and I think it was necessary to prepare the nation of Israel and to prepare David, uh, prepare them for his leadership and to prepare David for leadership. So we read on, they take him and they anoint him king. Verse 4 continues, it says this, when they told David, it was the men of Jabesh-Gilead who buried Saul, David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, May you be blessed by the Lord because you showed this loyalty to Saul, your Lord, and buried him. Now may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you, and I will do good to you because you have done this thing. Now therefore, let your hands be strong and be valiant, for Saul, your Lord, is dead, and the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. So one of the things we're going to see about David in these chapters, in the chapters to come in the, in the next few weeks, he makes a lot of really wise, astute decisions as he comes to power. Uh, we've seen this in past weeks that the men of Jabesh-Gilead had a long history with Saul, a long history of loyalty to the house of Saul. Saul had saved them. The inaugural action of his kingship was to rescue uh, the people of this particular city on the other side of the Jordan in the, in the land of Golan, the eastern side of the Jordan Valley. And these people loved, the men and the women and the families of Jabesh-Gilead loved the house of Saul, were loyal to him. And so at his death, we saw this at the end of 1 Samuel, they had gone and recovered his body, his lifeless body and the body of his sons because they wanted to honor their king. And so when David heard this, he used the opportunity to invite these brave men, the men of Jabesh-Gilead, to get behind his leadership as king. These are the kind of loyal and honorable men that a king wants in his corner. But what we're going to read here is that unfortunately, the men of Jabesh-Gilead are going to remain loyal to the house of Saul. Check out what happens. Verse 8. We're going to move fast this morning because we're covering lots of ground. 
But Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Manaim. And he made him king over Gilead and the Asherites and Jezreel and Ephraim and Benjamin and all Israel. So Abner comes back on the scene here. Abner was Saul's cousin. He was his longtime general. It was Abner who way back in the story of Goliath and David after David had defeated Goliath and Saul said, whose young man is this? Abner said, I don't know. And he went and got him and he brought him uh, to Saul. Abner had been with Saul in the house of Saul for many, many, many years. And he wanted the house of Saul to remain in power. And personally, he wanted to solidify his own position of power. So he takes the one remaining son of Saul. The other sons have all died in battle. Ishbosheth was kept back for whatever reason. And he takes him to the eastern side of the Jordan. He takes him to this area called Menaim, which is between where David is stationed and where the men of Jabesh Gilead are. He goes into the middle ground, right where the road would go. And there he anoints. He must have heard that David was seeking to get the loyalty of these men. He anoints Ishbosheth and stalls him as king over Israel. And so what we have here is the tribe of Judah is under the leadership of David. They see him as their king. The rest of Israel is under the kingship of the house of Saul. And it seems to me this is a bit of a foreshadow of what's going to happen in generations to come. Those who've been reading the Bible through 90 days, we were talking about this on Wednesday night, the division of the nation of Israel under uh, Rehoboam, Samuel, or sorry, Solomon's son. That 10 tribes, 10 of the tribes rebelled against the house of David and only Judah and Benjamin would be loyal. So we got a little bit of a foreshadow here. So verse 10. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel, and he reigned two years. But the house of Judah followed David. And the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. Verse 12. Abner, the son of Ner, and the servants of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, went out from Mahanaim to Gibeon, and Joab, the son of Zariah, and the servants of David went out and met them at the pool of Gibeon. And they sat down, the one on the one side of the pool and the other on the other side of the pool. And Abner said to Joab, let the young men arise and compete before us. And Joab said, let them arise. Then the men arose and passed over by number, 12 for Benjamin and Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and 12 of the servants of David. And each caught his opponent by the head and thrust his sword into his opponent's side so that they fell down together. Therefore, that place was called Helkath Hazarim, which means field of sword edges, which is at Gibeon. And the battle was very fierce that day, and Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David." So we've got these two kings in Israel, the house of Judah loyal to David. We've got uh, all of the rest of Israel loyal to the house of Saul. And there is a civil war, the potential of it brewing. And so we are introduced here to a guy who's going to be key in the story of David. For the first time, he's mentioned Joab. And Joab meets 
up with Abner. I think they probably called for a meeting together and they decide, hey, why have a big war? Why would we have a big war when we could just, you know, pit our best warriors against one another? It's kind of like, remember, again, back to the time of Goliath when the Philistines said, hey, why would we do a battle? Let's send our best warrior. You pick your best warrior. Losers lose, winners win. We can save ourselves all this, this battle. And the, the send your best and we'll decide who the champ is. So they decide to, to each pick 12 of their own best men and they let them battle for a winner takes all and it ends up that all 24 are dead and it initiates a fierce battle. Check out verse 18. And the three sons of Zariah were there Joab, Abishai, and Asael. Zariah was David's sister. So these are David's nephews, these three brothers. Now Asael was as swift of foot as a wild gazelle. Kind of like me, swift of foot like a wild gazelle. Verse 19. And Asael pursued Abner, and he went and turned neither to the right hand nor to the left from following Abner. Then Abner looked behind him and said, Is it you, Asael? And he said, it is I. Abner said to him, turn aside to your right hand or to your left and seize one of the young men and take his spoil. But Asael would not turn aside from following him. Now Abner, again, is a very seasoned warrior. This guy led the armies of Saul for 40 years. Uh, And that didn't stop, I mean, Aside from that, it didn't stop this young man from deciding to chase him down. Maybe his older brother Joab had said, you know, knowing your fleet of foot, S-A-L, chase down Abner. Uh, because if he could kill the general of the house of Saul, well, then it's going to throw the whole house of Saul into total chaos. And the record is clear here. It's actually interesting that the record is really clear to tell us that Abner did not want to hurt him. He told him, turn aside. He actually did it twice. Can't say he wasn't warned, verse 22, just a foreshadow. And Abner said again to Asael, turn aside from following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? How then could I lift my face to your brother Joab? But he refused to turn aside. Therefore, Abner struck him in the stomach with the butt of his spear so that the spear came out his back. And he fell there and died where he was. And all who came to the place where Asael had fallen and died, stood still. Now, part of the warning for this young man and the concern of Abner was that bad blood would just develop further, that there would be, you know, this civil war and all this trouble. And if he were to be killed, well, then, man, it's going to just make things really sour between the house of David and the house of Saul. And that's exactly what happened. Asael would not give up the pursuit. And so Abner took, I imagine, you know, the butt end of a a spear actually was often sharpened. So you read that, you go, how does that go? How did that go through his belly? Well, often they were sharpened so that they could be thrust into the ground so that when a soldier was up to something, he could just grab it and have the pointed and at his disposal, and that way he wasn't compromising the end of his weapon by sticking it into the ground. And so the butt end goes to the ground so that the sharp end, the the pointed end, the weaponized end could be used in battle. And 
This is a sly old soldier, a warrior. This is probably one of his signature moves. He let Asael close the gap, and then he planted the spear into the ground so that the young man propelled himself into the butt end, and he died. And Abner had not planned to kill him. I mean, we read this. He didn't even have the desire to do so, but he had warned this young guy, I'm experienced. You're a young man. But he wouldn't, the young guy wouldn't put on the brakes. So this just escalates everything that's going on. Verse 24. But Joab and Abishai pursued Abner. And as the sun was going down, they came to the hill of Ammah, which lies before Gaia on the way to the wilderness of Gibeon. And the people of Benjamin gathered themselves together behind Abner and became one group and took their stand on the top of the hill. And Abner called to Joab, Shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that the end will be bitter? How long will it be before you tell your people to turn from the pursuit of their brothers? And Joab said, As God lives, if you had not spoken, surely the men would not have given up the pursuit of their brothers until morning. So Joab blew the trumpet, and all the men stopped and pursued Israel no more, nor did they fight any more. So here's Abner. He's joined by fresh troops. That's what we find out. The Benjamites join him. They're able to gain the high ground on the servants of David. They take their stand on the top of the hill where they can defend themselves. And Abner talks some common sense into Joab. You know, he's just riled up. His brother's been killed. And he says, this is going to go on and on, this feud. Let's stop fighting. Make a truce. Go bury your brother. And Joab, I think Joab probably knew in his heart that David wanted to unify the nation. This isn't David initiating all of this stuff. David wanted to unify the nation, not tear it apart. So that's why Joab probably said, you know, God only knows what would happen if you wouldn't, hadn't stopped me. So, verse 29. Abner and his men went all that night through Arabah. They crossed the Jordan, and marching the whole morning, they came to Mahanaim. Joab returned from the pursuit of Abner, and when he had gathered all the people together, there were missing from David's servants 19 men beside Asael. But the servants of David had struck down of Benjamin 360 of Abner's men. And they took up Asael, and they buried him in the tomb of his father, which was at Bethlehem. And Joab and his men marched all night, and that day broke upon them at Hebron. I imagine that night that those two brothers, Joab and Abishai, comforted themselves by plotting how they would avenge their brother's death. And so they bury him at Bethlehem, and they return to David in Hebron, and we jump right to chapter 3. Let's jump right to chapter 3, verse 1. There was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. And David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. You know, when I, read, when I read this text, I would tell you that this is probably the theme verse or the most important verse in the midst of this whole narrative of the house of Saul and the house of David. It's a great verse. The hostility between the house of Saul and the house of David just continued to, to grow. And, and David knew that God had promised him the kingdom. 
And I think about this, I think, you know, Hebron gave him the opportunity to grow his leadership, to put the right people in the right role, to organize his government, to put leaders in place that would transition the whole entire uh, nation of Israel into his hands. David, we read here, was going from strength to strength. Well, at the same time, the leadership of Ishbosheth and his alliance with Abner was slowly falling apart. And I like this verse because to me, it's a picture of the battle of the flesh versus the spirit. I take great hope in this. With Christ in our lives, the promise is this, the spirit is going to win. The Lord Jesus is going to finish the work which he has begun in you. And the battle with the flesh, it's like a long war. Have you figured that out? It is a long battle, this battle with the flesh. And sometimes it feels like the flesh is winning. Or it feels like the flesh has gained the upper hand. But be assured, God's anointed will have the final victory. Amen? The day will come when the Spirit has total victory. And then... And until that day, we're in a long battle. A long battle, a daily battle. That's why the word of God encourages us to take up the armor, to choose this day whom you will serve. This is why the apostle Paul says, fight the good fight of faith. The fight of faith against the flesh is a noble, good fight. Fight. It's upright and it's virtuous to partner with the Spirit of God and to fight against the flesh in your life. Don't give up. Don't give up. Even if the flesh got the better of you this week, don't give up. Just get back up, dust it off, and get back in the fight. Shake off your discouragement. You know, only those who never have courage are discouraged. I, before we, I went away a couple weeks ago, I, I was like, I, I am not a person that struggles with like getting down and depressed. But I'm telling you, I was fighting for my joy, man. Ken had been sick and things were going on. And I'm like, man, I am in a battle like I have never experienced in terms of just fighting for the joy of my heart. But you can't ever end up in that spot unless your heart has been full of courage before. Only those who have courage get discouraged. Get up and fight the good fight of faith. And, I, and I'm just thankful the Lord just lifted me out of that. Because, because with Christ in us, the promise is this. You are becoming stronger and stronger and the flesh is becoming weaker and weaker as the Spirit of God is at work in your life. And I just, I'm so thankful for that. This is a great verse. Now check out verse 2. And sons were born to David at Hebron. His firstborn was Amnon of Ahinoam of Jezreel. If you've been reading through the Bible in 90 days, some of these names are going to be very familiar to you. His second was Chaliab of Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And the third was Absalom, the son of Makkah, the daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur. And the fourth, Adonijah, I don't know how to say it, son of Haggith. And the fifth, Shephatiah, son of Aphtael. And the sixth, 
Ethriam of Eglot, David's wife, these were born to David in Hebron. Wow. Uh, those were some fruitful years for King David. Okay. Now, this is no justification for taking all these wives. I mean, these are mainly all new wives during this time. It's crazy. And the Bible's not justifying this. It's just, you know, D David wasn't supposed to do this. The word of God is just reporting to us what he did. And, uh, you know, it may have been fruitful for him, but he has made a mess for himself. If you don't know the story of David, he has made a mess for himself. His son Abnon, Amnon was going to be the source of incredible heartache. Amnon would rape his sister. It seems to me that Absalom was probably his choice to be the heir as, as king. Like if you just know this, the story of David, on his mother's side, Absalom's grandfather was the king of Gesher. This kid had royalty on both sides of his family. His father was king, his grandfather was king on the other side. And certainly when you read the story of Absalom, I mean, this guy packs entitlement like none of the sons of David, absolutely. And Joab is actually going to end up killing him. Adam, that guy that I stumbled over his name, Solomon's going to see that he gets killed. I, I mean... David made his life and his family very complicated by all of these actions and taking on all of these wives. There's no justification for us here. It's just a mess, okay? So you can take hope if your life's a mess. The Lord was still at work. Verse 6, while there was a war between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner was making himself strong in the house of Saul. Now Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah. And Ishbosheth said to Abner, Why have you gone into my father's concubine? Then Abner was very angry over the words of Ishbosheth and said, Am I a dog's head of Judah? To this day I keep showing steadfast love to the house of Saul your father, to his brothers, and to his friends. And have not given you into the hand of David, and yet you charge me today with fault concerning a woman. God do so to Abner and more also, if I do not accomplish for David what the Lord has sworn to him, to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul, and to set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah, from Dan to Beersheba. And Ishbosheth, verse 11, and Ishbosheth could not answer Abner another word because he feared him. Wow, man, this is just disaster. And it was practice in that time that the heir to the throne would inherit the previous king's concubines. Ishbosheth would inherit his father's concubines, and it was one of the ways that he demonstrated that, that he was now the king, that he was fulfilling the role of the king, that he was stepping into the king's shoes. Remember, you know, it's, it's further ahead in this story about David, but when Absalom threatens his father's throne and creates a rebellion against David and David goes on the run, the counselors of Absalom tell him to do this very thing with his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. This is a sign that the nation is under uh, his control. And so Abner, we read, is doing this. He's strengthening his own position in the house of Saul. That much we know. 
Whether he actually did what Ishbosheth accuses him of, we're, we're not totally sure. He probably did. Probably did. So by sleeping with one of Saul's concubines, this was, this was part of him strengthening himself in the house of Saul, but it was also part of the disintegration of the house of Saul. Saul's house was becoming weaker and weaker. Right at the top, between the king and his most important official, relationship is disintegrating. And Abner was mad whether he was guilty or not. He did not want his authority questioned, his position challenged. So he said this, I'm going to see that the kingdom is transferred into the hands of David and that God's promise to him comes to pass. I, I love this because I was thinking about this. You know, this is what Jesus did for you. He transferred you from one kingdom into another. The word of God says from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his light. This is this exact same word that Paul, talks, Paul uses in the New Testament when he speaks about what Jesus did for you. He transferred you. Now we're a part of the Father's kingdom. Now let's read on here. Verse 12. I told you we're buying an awful lot of scripture this morning. And Abner sent messengers to David on his behalf saying, to whom does the land belong? Make your covenant with me and behold, my hand shall be with you to bring over all Israel to you. And he said, good, I will make a covenant with you. But one thing I require of you, that is, you shall not see my face unless you bring Michael, Saul's daughter, when you come to see my face. Then David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, Saul's son, saying, Give me my wife, Michael, for whom I paid the bridal price of a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. 200, right, Blake? 200? Isn't that what he said he paid for Jessica? I don't know. Remember that? Okay. Okay, okay. Verse 15. And Ishbosheth sent and took her from her husband, Paltiel, the son of Laish, but her husband went with her, weeping after her all the way to Bahurim. Then Abner said to him, go return, and he returned. So this is what David desired. David wanted a peaceful transition of power. <laughs> I love this. He's not manipulating. He's not uh, forcing things. He just went about his business, leading the, leading the tribe of Judah establishing his leadership, establishing the team around him. And he's looking after what God had given him and he's waiting for the Lord to deliver the rest of the nation into his hands. And I love this about David. This was the pattern of David for a long time. David had learned this. He faithfully would just honor God with what God had given him or wherever God had placed him. And he would wait for the Lord to bring about his plan. He's already waited 25 years. Now seven more years in, in Hebron here. So when Abner says, uh, I'll make a covenant with you and I'll bring the rest of Israel over to you, David sees the Lord's hand at work and he says, yeah, let's do it. And then he does the kingly thing, just as he's, you know, establishing his authority. He says, but don't come. Don't come unless you bring my bride. Remember Michael, the daughter of Saul? She had been in love with David when he was a young man. And I think that 
he had loved her, his first wife. He had paid the bride price that Saul had demanded, a hundred Philistines, and David had gone and taken 200. And when he had fled from Saul, you know, Michael had helped him, covered it up, but then Saul gave her to another man. He, he gave his daughter away to another man. It was a way of just twisting the dagger in the side of David. And so this is David asserting his authority over the house of Saul. He wants the daughter of Saul back. I kind of think the, the picture of her husband is kind of entertaining to me. I don't know. Maybe that's, I don't know. He's following, crying, and then Abner says, you better turn around. <laughs> Whoop, about face he goes. Verse 17, and Abner conferred with the elders of Israel saying, for some time past, you've been seeking David as king over you. Now then bring it about for the Lord has promised David saying, by the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. Abner also spoke to Benjamin, that's Saul's tribe. Abner also spoke to Benjamin, and then Abner went to tell David at Hebron all that Israel and the whole house of Benjamin thought good to do. What did they think was good to do? To make David king over all of them. So, so Abner comes to Hebron to deliver the rest of Israel to David. Let's read on here, verse 20. When Abner came with 20 men to David at Hebron, David made a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. And Abner said to David, I will arise and will go and will gather all Israel to my Lord, the king, that they may make a covenant with you and that you may reign over all that your heart desires. So David sent Abner away and he went in peace. So this is a peaceful transition of power into the hands of David. The text is very clear to tell us that the relationship between Abner and David was one of peace. That Abner went away in peace. David had honored him, honored Abner, honored the men that had come with him with a feast. This was a, a peaceful transition. And it's interesting just to think about it. You know, David and Abner had a lot of history with each other. They had stood shoulder to shoulder in war with each other. David had run from Abner as Abner was alongside of Saul all those years pursuing him. But what we read here is that this is all good. Things between David and Abner are good. And really, you know, Abner is setting himself up for a position of prominence in the house of David. David's kingdom, verse 22. Just then the servants of David arrived with Joab from a raid, bringing much spoil with them. But Abner was not with David at Hebron, for he had sent him away and he had gone in peace. When Joab and all the army that was with him came, it was told Joab, Abner, the son of Ner, came to the king and he has let him go and he has gone in peace. It's very important to this story. He has gone in peace. Verse 24. Then Joab went to the king and said, What have you done? Behold, Abner came to you. Why is it that you have sent him away so that he is gone? You know that Abner, the son of Ner, came to deceive you and to know you're going out and you're coming in and to know all that you are doing. So here's Joab. He's been out on a raid. 
doing stuff for David, bringing in the spoils of war to the house of David. And he learns that David has treated Abner in peace, that they've made a covenant, that things are all good. And he's totally ripping mad about it. He's upset. Job had no use for Abner. He wanted him dead. And he actually accuses Abner of spying things out. And he says, it's likely he's going to betray you, David. And what's interesting is that we don't get any answer from David on this. It's like Job hurls all of these accusations and King David is quiet. And Job leaves and he sends messengers to call Abner back. Now let's check it out. Job's going to murder him. Verse 26. When Joab came out from David's presence... He sent messengers after Abner, and they brought him back from the cistern of Sirach. And David did not know about it. And Abner returned to Hebron. Joab took him aside into the midst of the gate to speak to him privately, and there he struck him in the stomach so that he died for the blood of Asiel, his brother. Afterward, when David heard of it, he said, I and my kingdom are forever guiltless before the Lord for the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. May it fall upon the head of Joab and upon his fa- all his father's house. And may the house of Joab never be without one who has a discharge or who is leprous or who holds a spindle or who falls by the sword or who lacks bread. That's quite the curse. So Joab and Abishai, His brother killed Abner because he had put their brother Asael to death in the battle at Gibeon. So here is Joab and Asael. They avenged their brother's death. They did it by sticking the sword into the exact spot that Asael had taken the spear. Other other translations tell us under the fifth rib. It's very specific. Asael took the spear under the fifth rib and Joab gave, stuck it to Abner under the fifth rib. And and what's brutal about this is that Asael's death happened during a time of war. Battle. It was a battle situation. It was like Abner didn't want it to happen, but it happened in the context of a battle. But this, this is just straight up murder. This man was sent away in peace. He had had been sent by King David in peace, and David knew nothing about what had gone on here until the report came back to him. And David said this, I am guiltless in this. This is entirely on Joab. Now, let's read on here. Verse 31. Then David said to Joab, And to all the people who were with him, tear your clothes and put on sackcloth and mourn before Abner. And the king and King David followed the buyer. They buried Abner at Hebron. And the king lifted up his voice and he wept at the grave of Abner. And all the people wept. And the king lamented for Abner saying, should Abner die as a fool dies? Your hands were not bound. Your feet were not fettered. As one who falls before the wicked, you have fallen, and all the people wept over him. What's amazing about this story is that Hebron was one of six unique cities in the nation of Israel. 
When the people of Israel had crossed the Jordan and come into the promised land, the Lord had instructed them that they were to designate six cities to be what were called cities of refuge. And a city of refuge was a place where someone who had committed a crime, whether on purpose or by accident, could flee. So let's say, you know, you'd been in a situation and you accidentally, in a workplace accident, your coworker gets killed and you're to blame. You could flee to this city of refuge and there the leaders of this community would protect you against the avenger of blood. And you would get the opportunity to have a fair trial and, a, and, uh, and freedom. If, if you were guilty, punishment would happen to you. If you were unguilty, there was an opportunity to, to stay in that community and you would be protected within the borders of that community. The avenger of blood could not come after you. And it's crazy that here is Abner. This is the picture. Abner went to David to the city of refuge. If he had just stayed in Hebron, he would have been completely safe. Totally safe. But he came and he made a decision to leave. Now church, for us as followers of Jesus, this is what we say about Jesus. Jesus is our refuge. We say this regularly about Jesus. I think I prayed it earlier. Jesus is the city of refuge to which we run. We have guilt. That's what the Bible tells us, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that every one of us has missed the mark. We have sinned against the Lord, and the scripture tells us that the punishment of sin, the wages of sin is death. And so we need a place of refuge, a place to which we can run so that we can be free and protected and sheltered from the avenger. We run to Christ. We run to Christ. Jesus is our refuge. And to me, the warning of this text is this. Don't be lured away from Jesus. Don't leave your city of refuge. Don't leave the one to whom you've run for protection, for hope, for eternal life, for salvation. Jesus is our refuge. Amazing. Abner just left that city and it cost him his life. Now verse 35. And all the people came to persuade David to eat bread while it was day. But David swore saying, God do so to me and more. Also, if I taste bread or anything else till the sun goes down. Key verse here, verse 36, worth underlining. The people took notice of it and it pleased them. As everything that the king did pleased all the people. So all the people of Israel understood that day that it had not been the king's will to put to death Abner the son of Ner. And the king said to his servants, do you, do you not know that a prince and a great man has fallen this day in Israel? And I was gentle today, though anointed king. These men, the sons of Zariah, are more severe than I. The Lord repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. Think about Abner. Abner 
spent most of his life fighting against David. But at the end of his life, he turned it around and he joined David. He's a great picture of a person who can spend most of their life fighting against Jesus, resisting the lordship and the kingship of Jesus, fighting against the one who is the son of David. It's an awesome thing when you watch someone who has fought for so many years against the son of David come to the place where they finally say, I'm going to follow him. Isn't it awesome? You know, a simple message of uh, Abner was this, is that when he made the decision that he was going to follow David, he encouraged others to do the same. And it's amazing because it's not very long that Abner actually was a follower of David, but in the midst of that, that short time that he had to say, come on, let's follow David, he turned a nation around. He, he, he caused thousands to turn towards the kingship of David. And, and this is a beautiful picture of what Christ Jesus will do for us when we turn to him. You know, Abner turns to David and David makes a covenant of peace with him. After all the years of hostility, after all the years when, when, when Abner could have taken that spear and stuck it in David and would have been happy to do so, David makes peace with him when he turns to him. And you know, if you don't know Jesus, you know, you're watching maybe with us online this morning. It's great to have you with us. You're here with us, maybe new visiting. This is a beautiful picture of what Jesus Christ will do for you if you'll turn to him. And the question I just want to leave you with this morning is this, is have you anointed Jesus as your king? Maybe you've been on the run from Jesus for a long, long time most of your life. If you'll turn to him, his word says this, he'll make peace between you and himself. He will make peace between you and your father. And the word of God is clear that we've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God, that the wages of sin is death, and that Jesus Christ, the eternal son of David, was sent by the father to this earth, clothed himself in flesh, lived as a man, went to a cross where he died for the sins of mankind and was buried and raised from the dead so that whosoever should believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Have you anointed Jesus as your king? Would you pray with me this morning? I'm going to invite you guys to stand. I'm going to invite the worship team to come. Lord Jesus, we just come before you and we want to just make sure we got this relationship in the right order this morning between ourselves and you. Lord, I pray for every person here and everyone watching with us online this morning. I pray, Lord, that we'd take the opportunity to make sure this relationship's right. I thank you for the picture of Abner 
who after many years of hostility made peace with David. And Lord Jesus, we thank you this morning that the word of God instructs us and tells us that while we were yet sinners, you died for us. You took all of the steps and actions towards us for peace. You didn't manipulate us. You didn't seek to control us, to twist our arms. You went about the work that the Father called you to do, and you wait for us to turn to you as you just remain faithful in our lives. And so, Jesus, this morning, we want to just turn our hearts towards you to make sure that you're anointed as king of our lives. And Lord, I just pray for anyone that's with us today that doesn't know you, that has been running for a long time from you. Lord, I pray today they would just turn and face you. I pray, Jesus, that they would turn towards you, the eternal son of David, and accept the peace that you offer, the forgiveness you offer, the life you offer, the hope that you offer. And so, Jesus, this morning we confess you as Lord. We acknowledge our sin before you, Lord. We acknowledge, Jesus, that we are dependent upon you for peace with the Father on your death and your resurrection. And so, Jesus, we confess you as Lord, asking you to forgive us of our sins and wash us in the blood of Christ and lead us into that life of peace where the Spirit grows stronger and stronger and the things of flesh lose their power and authority in our lives. Thank you, Jesus, that he who began a good work in us will be faithful to complete it. We bless you this morning, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.